Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Africa's a Country Talk. If you don't know who I am, I'm Will Shorky, and I'm streaming from Johannesburg in South Africa, joined, as always, by my lovely co-presenter, Sean Jacobs, who's in Brooklyn, New York. And this is AIAC Talk, a weekly interview show that we broadcast every Tuesday at 7 p.m. if you're in Nairobi, 5 p.m. if you're in Dakar, or 6 p.m. if you're where I am in Johannesburg. And our show is produced as always by Antoinette Engel, who is in Cape Town, South Africa. And this time, I promise we've got it right. This is episode 33. There we go. <laughs> um, welcome from uh, the, I was going to say, in decolonial time. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, I was channeling Mamdani there for a second. Um, nice. <laughs> thanks, Will. On today's show, we discuss the um, efforts of uh, two people, Atima Feje and Cedric Robinson, two scholars and activists, both now late, whose efforts to challenge Eurocentrism in political thought are becoming more widely known. Our guests are Bongani Nyoka, who is a lecturer in the Department of Political and International Studies at Rhodes University, and who has written two books on Achima Feje, and Joshua Myers, who is an Associate Professor of Africana Studies in the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University and who is currently working on a book on Cedric Robinson. And if you missed our show last week, it was a great one and it explored the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring. With our guests, we spoke about what the Arab Spring was all about, how much longer until the revolution that it started will remain deferred, and why we didn't really see a political spring spread to the south of the Sahara in that moment, but how it influenced all protests which happened subsequently. And for that, we had Nahal Al-Assa, who is an Egyptian independent researcher currently based in London, as well as Zachary Mampili, who co-authored the 2015 book, Africa Uprising, Popular Protest and Political Change. Clips from that episode are on our YouTube channel, but as usual, check out the whole thing on our Patreon with all of the episodes from our archives. And in a few moments, we're gonna talk to our first guests, but Sean, firstly, what's been on your mind this week? Football. Boys. <laughs> from, Boys apart from Achima Feje and Cedric Robinson, like looking at their writings, um, see what people have said about them. I would say just football, African football. So mm -hmm. I know for a lot of you, it was the so-called international break. You weren't looking at football because your club wasn't playing. <laughs> Basically, your, as Grieve would say, you're, you're not the colonial club in the lucrative um, European leagues. And so uh, what happened was um, uh, players traveled, if you want, home to go play for the national team. Um, I know that South America had a break, but most other national teams were playing. Um, and so the main one was people, I know a lot of people are watching the European nations playing for their qualifying matches for the World Cup. But what was more interesting for me was um, I was paying attention to the qualifiers for the for the African Cup of Nations. Uh, and that's a tournament that's played every two years. It was supposed to happen this year, but um, it got canceled uh, because of COVID. And so now it's gonna take place next year in January in Cameroon. And so 
this past week was kind of the crunch week, like when there was like one, it's like one match, two matches left. You could now see who was going to qualify. So 19 teams qualified for this 24 spots. I'm not going to go through all the qualifiers. Some of the usual suspects, of course, they did qualify. But there were some really nice ones that came through that I, I will recognize here because I think people don't say that enough. Uh, Malawi qualified. I was quite pleased to see that. I think they beat Uganda, maybe it was for, in a game. So did the Comoros. The Comoros Islands qualified. This was their first time. They've only participated in international football since 2006. Gambia qualified, like sort of like next to next to Senegal, and Senegal's of course Senegal qualified. Um, and so uh, the last one was Sudan. There's like I think there's like the other five places are still left, but Sudan qualified, and they were beaten by South Africa. They, sorry, they beat South Africa 2-0 which is kind of where my uh, the last result <laughs> setting um, as a South African, um, it's particularly disappointing. And I was just going to say, we're going to get the usual introspection, the long articles from South Africa about we were once great in the mid nineties, look how we've fallen, you know, mm. it, it just, yeah. And the same old, it's going to be the same old discussion, but I think it will be kind of cliche because it won't yeah. lead to anything. And so I, I was talking to my brother, you know, when these things happen, I call up my brother usually after a game. I'm watching South Africa. I struggle to get the signal, be in sports on some streaming device. And I was like, I'm going for the game. And when I was started watching, I was like, yo, it's already 2-0. I was upset. My Sunday was over. So I called my brother. And my brother was like, yo, here's the solution. They need to start playing players who are making their careers in South Africa, making their lives in South Africa, and who ostensibly have become South African. In other words, the idea of who plays for the national team in South Africa should change. And this it's ironic also that South African football and South African football fans will make a lot of noise about xenophobic Europe and xenophobic national teams in Europe who don't want to play, you know, players of African descent. We'll have like articles written about the French national team, the Portuguese national team, and how diverse they've become and how Portuguese people are fighting against that diversity. But when it comes to our own national teams, we fight tooth and nail to keep a particular idea um, of the nation. And so what I, what I, what my brother basically said to me is like, what about, and he, he mentioned that Pizzamo Semani has been going on about this guy, Gaston Serino, who's, who's from Uruguay, actually, originally. He was born in Uruguay, but he's literally made his career in South Africa with Mamelodi Sundance. And I think he just got signed by, uh, Pizzo went to al uh, which by the way, I don't know why Pizzo is not the national coach. That's a separate debate. And yeah, Lefi, whoever was is the coach, I've never heard of him. Um, but uh, somebody said no revolution. <laughs> um, but Gaston Serino should be playing for South Africa. And Pizzo actually has been making this case since last year, saying, Why isn't Safa picking this guy and making him part of the national team? Similarly, there's another player who's eligible to play for South Africa, uh, Samir Nurkovic, who, who plays for Kaiser Chiefs, brilliant player from Serbia originally. He has actually said, he would like to play for South Africa. But for some reason, a football fraternity in South Africa doesn't want to pick the guy. My quick two other points about this is, it's also bizarre why, why football is so weird and backward about this in South Africa, because it's not unusual in South Africa. Football, by the way, have picked, the football's picked some players who are from somewhere else. Uh, they've picked, these are, these are actually highlights of sort of Murkovic uh, in action for Kaiser Chiefs. I mean, we need this kind of striker. Currently we have like, yeah. Percy Tau. That's 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 what we got. He's great, but he's not a natural goal scorer. But anyway, they've had like Hans Funk, 
They picked him quickly before the 98 World Cup. Pierre Issa, who played for Marseille, who's of Lebanese background, no connections to South Africa. They had no problem with having those guys in the team. Why can't they have these players? Um, similarly, I will say in other sports codes in South Africa, they pick players who are not born in South Africa. In, in rugby, for example, you have uh, Bees, um, um, Tawarira, who was from, originally from Zimbabwe, but for all intents and purposes, if you ask South Africans, nobody says that about him anymore. He's, exactly, yeah. he's part of that fabric of what we think about a sort of diverse country. So he's playing for South Africa uh, and he's playing in the rugby team. You have uh, um, Imran Tahir, who is a spin bowler in the cricket team from Pakistan, just came to South Africa. When the cricket team needed a good spinner, they picked him. So I would like to see that in football. I'm talking directly to Safa right now. They're not seeing this program. And I also, <laughs> here's why I always like football. This thing about football that I really like about women's football. And I don't know if you remember uh, when uh, when um, in Nigeria they 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 had the protests, um, the the hashtag protests um, uh, late last year now or earlier. Yeah. Now the name of the this is so terrible. Himsaz. And SARS. And what was fascinating about this, the first footballer to make a political intervention there plays for the women's team. She plays, I think, for FC Barcelona Feminine. And similarly, it is the women's team in South Africa in football that has actually done this already. This One of the stars of the 2019 World Cup team was a, is a player called Ode Fulutudilu, who was born in the DRC and is essentially a product of, is a, a child of refugees. Um, family ended up in Cape Town and she played, she started a club football in some of the women's clubs in Cape Town. She currently plays in Finland. Before this, I think she played in Spain for Malaga. She played in the national team. So if the women's team, I've always said it, if the women's team is showing the men's team how to do this, you know, the men's national team, then yeah, we should, this should be happening in South Africa. And again, the larger point here is really about national identity in South Africa and about yeah. being a South African. It's, it's, it's this idea that only the people, we've said this before, who's been a party to the conflict, i.e. whether you came there on a boat, whether you enslaved people, whether you were a slave, uh, uh, whether you were oppressed, you all have the right to the place. But it, it doesn't extend, it hasn't extended further than that. So it's a very bounded idea of the nation. And maybe football, which always shows the way, should turn up right now and do the right thing. So we could start winning again. We could, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm fed up. Well, what was what's on your mind? I think it's going to be more weight. It's going to carry more weight. Not at all. Not at all. What would be so funny is that once the show ends and we we select the clips to put on our YouTube channel, we should title this uh, "A Message to the South African Footballing Association" from Sean Jacobs, <laughs> and and promote it as that so that it can get to the to the right ears. Um, but yeah, what's what's been on mind is nothing quite as deep. Actually, I've I've been thinking about memes. Um, and I'll, I'll I'll talk about this real quick, but as as people by now know, there's a, a big crisis that's ongoing in the Suez Canal in in Egypt. And I mean, I don't think I need to give the breakdown of what's happened, but there's this massive container ship called the Ever Given that's blocked the southern entrance to the canal, and it's basically just carrying too much cargo. And the canal, when it was designed in 1869 wasn't built for the passage of ships that big and there's an article here on the washington post by lale khalili who explains this 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 big debacle really well but i think what's been quite funny about this episode is that while there was a suez crisis that happened um during the presidency of egyptian president uh 
Kamal, Kamal Abdel Nasser in, I think, 1956. Uh, and that was like a super intense crisis. He nationalized the canal and uh, the, U the UK, France, and Israel invaded Egypt, and there was a conflict. Uh, and then this one, this happens, and what's actually overshadowed the crisis itself have been the memes that have been produced around the crisis. So the meme format that's that's doing the rounds is basically you see this massive looming ship and there's on the banks of the canal, there's a small digger that's just basically trying to excavate. Uh, and people are just going wild with this meme. This is my favorite one that's on screen now. It's just juxtaposing these two Karl Marx quotes and it has uh, the one on the on the ever given ship and men making their own history being this little puny timid digger trying to 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 sort of um, to break the 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 ship uh, free. So I, I just I just thought these memes were absolutely hilarious and you know there's a lot to say about memes as a as an image format and what their circulation means for the spirit of the age and how you know it has this incredible ability to to communicate complicated points in a very accessible and immediate way, but at the same time, it can also make humor, but repetitive and routinous. So that's that's for another day. Um, but these are some yeah, these are some really good memes that are that are doing the rounds, and and yeah, that's been that's been that's what's been on my mind. <laughs> this one's good. Um, this one's pretty good. Yeah, just sort of. Uh, I guess taking a shot at the the state of academia, where there's these big problems we have to deal with, and then someone wants to talk about an obscure theorist. Um, but on today's show, we're not talking about obscure theorists. Well, at some point they were obscure, and now they're becoming more widely known, and we think that's a good thing. But before we get to that, remember to hit the like button below and subscribe on our YouTube channel, as well as follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please subscribe to our Patreon where you can access all of the show's episodes and help fund Africa as a country in general. So to talk about those theorists that we mentioned, let's bring on our first guest, who is Bungani Nyoka, who is a lecturer in the Department of Political International Studies at Rhodes University, or some call it the university currently known as Rhodes. And he's written two books on the person we want to talk about today, which is Archie Mafeje. And those two books are Archima Feje, Voices of Liberation, which came out with HSRC Press in 2019, as well as very recently, The Social and Political Thoughts of Archima Feje, which came out with Wits University Press in 2020. So, Bongani, thank you very much for joining us in today's episode. I think a lot of people are very excited to have you on. So, maybe a good place to start is for our listeners who don't really know anything about Archie. Uh, who was? Archimafeje. I think most people know him in a very roundabout way, given what happened with him and the Mafeje affair. Uh, but other than that, who who was he? Give us a sort of uh, 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 an understanding of his life and who he was as a man. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me. And, um, um, thanks to, to your guests for joining us. Um, yeah, I think Archie, you say he was one of the obscure theorists. Well, he was obscure in certain parts of the world, but I think he was well-respected in other parts of the world, particularly here in Africa and um, and some parts of that world, especially in the, in the 60s and, and 70s, 
maybe all the way up to the 1990s. Um, in South Africa, people generally write about Achimafeji in, in at least two ways. Um, the first, you, you have a cohort of um, historians and anthropologists who write about Achimafeji in a biographical way. That is to say, they're interested in his experiences, particularly the 1968 affair that you've mentioned um, at UCT. And then these, these are mainly um, white anthropologists and white historians. And then you have a black cohort of intellectuals who, um, who are interested primarily in Ashma Fesher's debates. These are debates which occur um, towards the um, later part of his career. Um, issues around Africanity and Afrocentricity. And um, I think they are seduced primarily by his, uh, his polemical style. But my own interest is, is um, in Achima Feger's work, the theoretical aspects of his work. Um, so Achi was born in March um, 1936 in Um in the Eastern Cape here in South Africa. Uh, he studied um, at Ngabaha Secondary School, which was also in Ngobo. And um, this was important in a variety of ways because there he met one of the leaders of the unity movement, um, um, Nathaniel Chucha Onono. He spends two years there at Ngabaha Secondary School, and then he proceeds to Hilltown College, which was um, one of the prestigious schools for, for, for black people in South Africa at the time. And this was uh, around 1954. Um, there he meets another leader of the unity movement, um, Livingstone Coetzee. And during this time, he's introduced not only to Marxism, but also um, to political struggles in South Africa. From there, he moves to the University of Forte. Um, he spends only one semester there, um, which was in 1955. And uh, his studies were cut short um, by um, student protests. He returned the following year, but he couldn't stay for one reason or another, and this was 1956. So he leaves the Eastern Cape uh, for the Western Cape. He goes to Cape Town, and he um, studied at UCT, where he did a Bachelor of Social Science, um, Bachelor of Sciences, BSc, in microbiology. Oh, wow, I didn't uh, even know that part. Yes, yeah. Oh, they, I didn't know that either. In, yes, um, in Cape Town, he is uh, introduced, I suppose he knew them before he went to Cape Town, um, one of the leaders, or some of the leaders of the, of the unity movement, um, I.B. Tabata, mm -hmm. uh, A.C. Jordan, uh, Jane Gould, um, and, and several other leaders of, of the unity movement. Um, but towards the end of his BSc degree, 1959, he interacts with uh, Monica Wilson, who was um, a prominent social anthropologist at the time, although of a, of a liberal bent. 
And he is employed by her um, as a research assistant. And they work towards producing this book, which was his very first book. It's uh, Langa, a study of social groups in an African uh, township. So um, Langa is one of the townships in, um, in Cape Town, South Africa. I think the, the very first one, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. um, so having uh, worked with Monica Wilson, he abandons the BSc degree. Um, I think part of the reason is because he wasn't doing well there and um, uh, he had lost interest, I think. That's one of the things he says in, in the letters that he wrote to Monica Wilson, which are to be found at UCT in the, in the archives. So uh, he switches from the BSc and he registers for a BA in the second semester of uh, 1959. Yeah. And so he enrolls for a degree in social anthropology, majors in anthropology and uh, psychology. And um, in 1960, uh, 1963, he completes his MA, his master's um, in social anthropology, having conducted his study in uh, Englobo. It's a comparative study of two villages. Um, he studies the formation of peasants in an, in an African uh, setting. So he compares these two rural areas. Um, but also during that period, 1962, 1963, he publishes this book with Monica Wilson, but he also publishes a, a single authored article titled A Chief Visits Town, which is an ethnographic study um, of a chief from the trans guy who visits Lana, um, Chief from Tiraha. Um, and so uh, in nine, at the end of 1963, um, he completes his degree and he leaves South Africa at the beginning of 1964 to um, study at Cambridge, to do his PhD in social anthropology, where he was to be supervised by uh, Audrey Richards, who was Monica Wilson's friend. So he spends only one year in Cambridge, really, um, doing coursework for his PhD. Um, the following year, 1965, he leaves Cambridge, he returns to South Africa in Uganda to do field work of uh, peasants in um, Uganda, area in Uganda. And at the same time, he taught at uh, Makerere University as a visiting lecturer there. Uh, so towards the completion of his PhD in 1968, whilst he was still waiting for his results, he applies for a senior lectureship position uh, at UCT. Um, he gets the job on merit, but then the Minister of Education at the time, uh, Jan de Klerk. Is that, is was, that W. de Klerk's father? Yes, yeah. He intervenes and says, a white university cannot employ um, a Bantu, which is a black man. And so he exerts pressure on UCT and uh, UCT rescinds Marfej's application or appointment. And so he doesn't return to South Africa 
But also it's important to note that um, the fact that it didn't return to South Africa in 1968 is not based purely on the fact that um, he didn't get the job, but mm. also because the apartheid state was looking for him. He had been arrested in 1963 when he was completing his MA for organizing um, a, a protest in Flagstaff, which is a, a village or a rural town in the Eastern Cape. So um, during this period, the, the apartheid state also harasses his, um, one of his younger sisters because he was writing to her at the time. So they wanted to know what's your brother up to and, and all of this. So um, he, in the late 60s, gets a job at the University of Dar es Salaam, where he meets um, some of the most interesting and radical social scientists um, who aren't just African, but also from other parts of the world, all of whom were based at uh, the University of Dar es Salaam. And there, I mean, the interesting thing about Achim Afeji, although he was a member of the unity movement, which was by and large a Marxist organization, his academic work, um, which was published in the 1960s, was of a liberal and functionalist bent. Um, he had been co-authoring articles with Monica Wilson. And one of the things he says, for example, when Monica sends him um, a draft of the, of the manuscript, he says, I like this book because it is purely scientific and it has nothing to do with race. Obviously, I mean, that was nonsense because it's a book about Lama Township. It's a study of black people in South Africa, so it has everything to do with race. Um, but during his time at Cambridge, he came to believe that this idea that you can separate your intellectual ideas from your political ideas was misguided because it was part of the old positivist idea that knowledge was neutral and value free. So he falls out with his PhD supervisor, um, Audrey Richards. He writes letters to her, they fight, and whenever Richards writes to Monica Wilson about anything, they could be writing about recipes, there would be one paragraph <laughs> in those letters where she takes time to disachimavege, you know, saying, <laughs> this guy will never be a good academic. Charming, he is <laughs> funny, but he'll never, he'll probably be a good administrator, uh, maybe a vice chancellor or a dean. Obviously, she was, she was wrong about this. But uh, anyway, um, although um, Archie's um, earlier work, I mean, his work of the 1960s was of a liberal functionalist bent, it's when he spends time um, in Dar es Salaam that he's able to unify or marry his intellectual and political ideas. So that some of the letters that he wrote to Monica Wilson, for example, um, there was a change of, of consciousness, I think, within a space of 12 months. He writes a letter to her and he says, uh, your friends are crazy because they want to to start an interdisciplinary program 
This is going to lead to a situation where we have students who are not methodologically grounded in any one discipline. Four months later, he says, I, I was appointed professor and I wanted to start an, an interdisciplinary program. And then I fought the dean and um, he started this whole thing. Um, I think six months after that, he, he says, I now believe in non-disciplinary social science, not just inter, but non-disciplinary. And he is shaped by some of the debates which were taking place at Dar es Salaam at the time. And he publishes in 1968 a very important article um, entitled The Problem of Anthropology in Historical Perspective, an inquiry into the growth of the social sciences. So whilst, whilst radical uh, social scientists at the time were obsessed with the discipline of anthropology as being handmaiden of colonialism, Mafeja's intervention was this. The problem of anthropology is not purely ideological. It is also epistemological. And therefore, our concerns should not be purely based on its role um, in colonial administration, but also its, um, its theoretical um, lenses. And he says the biggest crime of the discipline of anthropology is functionalism, positivism, and alterity. That is, up initial from the beginning, it's the study of the other. You see, so that his argument is that all the uh, social scientists, sciences are, are not just Eurocentric, but they are also imperialist. The difference with anthropology is that it was in the third world what other social sciences were in Europe. Mm. Um, and so um, his alternative was this non-disciplinary social science because which it says you can, okay? No, no, I was going to say, yeah, which is also like probably then how he, if he's if he's coming up with kind of a new way to do social science, which is the, the, the other part of the, I mean, we, you know, we have a lot to cover on his life, but one of the things I'm sort of curious about is, is that also the moment where he then begins to write differently about land and agrarian reform? Is that when that when that starts happening? Um, so his his PhD was actually uh, based on land and agrarian issues in um, in Uganda. Right. But he, he uh, I I can't access his PhD thesis. I requested it from Cambridge and they. They couldn't send it to me for whatever reason. Um, I have a feeling that even though his thinking was uh, shifting somewhat from writing from this liberal functionalist perspective, but he was also um, making or trying to unify this um, intellectual uh, pursuits with these political Marxist pursuits. So that what's interesting about his PhD thesis, he does not convert it into a book until the mid-80s. 
Um, and so it was only published in 1991 as this book, um, The Theory and Ethnography of African Social Formations. Um, but suffice it to say, he had been writing um, about land and agrarian issues um, since the since he was a student in the in the 1960s, but what what changes I think in the 1970s onwards is his um, intellectual and political lens, um, which he uses to to study. But also I think um, I should mention that in studying this aspect of his work his critique of the social sciences, because it wasn't just a critique of the discipline of anthropology, it was a critique of the social sciences as social sciences. Um, so I make a distinction between two aspects within this um, cluster of his work. So you have him critiquing particular concepts within the social sciences but then you have this programmatic critique or this meta critique of the social sciences themselves. So the article, for example, which uh, I forgot to mention, um, the, the ideology of tribalism, which was published in 1971. This is where he establishes a radical break with these liberal functionalist um, ideas, with this article. Um, but it's not a critique of the social sciences, nor is it a critique of the discipline of anthropology, but it's a critique of how this concept was used at the time. So that, for example, he says it was um, used to explain conflicts in Africa um, by Eurocentric social scientists. It was also used by colonial administrators. And then it was also used by African leaders themselves for their own political ends. But fourthly, to the extent that Africans, ordinary Africans come to believe that there are differences amongst them based on these tribal and ethnic divisions, it's a case of false consciousness. Um, so, and, and a lot of people say he rejected the, the, the concept or the entity of tribe. He does not. He actually believes that there was at some point in African history things called self-contained political and e economic units which were called tribes. But then by the time colonialism disrupted the African continent, we no longer had tribes because um, of, of, of various dis, uh, disruptions. And so he says, to that extent, the concept of tribalism or tribe um, in the African continent is outdated and anachronistic. So uh, in any case... Um, to ask, sorry, to ask a, a, a question related to this, mm. um, which is, he has this thoroughgoing critique of social sciences as a discipline and it's rooted in a critique of um, epistemology and how how knowledge is produced and whom is producing it and to what ends how, what what program for reform did he propose so he has these ideas of africanacity africanization indigenization what 
what did that what did that entail for him okay yes that's uh, that's um important i mean you see the thing about archie and and um one of the things that attracts me to his work is that his critique was not purely negative. I mean, it wasn't just saying, you know, let's do away with this. Um, so he he says we can negate um, anthropology from the social sciences, but we will still have the problem of Eurocentrism and imperialism in other social sciences. Therefore, the alternative, he says, is a non-disciplinary social science. And so what would this look like, this uh, non-disciplinary social science? He says his substitute concept for it, because his, his, uh, his critics were saying to him, listen, you can do away with disciplines within the social sciences, but whatever it is that you come up with will still be a social science. He admits that yes, it will still be a social science, but it is a social science of a different kind. He assigns a particular, a particular label, which is quite peculiar in the sense that it is used by anthropologists and, and other social scientists. He says it's ethnography. This is the substitute concept for him. He calls it African ethnography. But what is this African ethnography? It's inductive in nature in that it doesn't use theory or employ theory to understand this or the other society. What it does instead is to build theory based on the concrete realities of the African social formations. And so um, this inductive approach to, to the social sciences of his, this ethnography. He's, when he talks about ethnography, he's not talking about a research method or a technique in the social sciences. Instead, he uses it as a substitute concept for the social sciences as we know them. Um, and so this inductive approach lays the foundation for the other aspects of his work, which is land and agrarian studies, and also uh, political um, revolutionary theory and politics. He also um, started writing, there was a debate um, amongst African scholars, um, um, especially those who were affiliated to Kodestria, the institution, uh, which is based in Dakar. It was a debate around uh, the supposed link or connection between democracy and development. Now, this is uh, an underdeveloped aspect of Ajay's work because those writings, which are based on this theory of development, seem to me largely underdeveloped, but they are important nonetheless. So I'm not sure if this constitutes a standalone aspect or cluster of his writings, but it's important to read it because the um the dichotomy at the time um was that some african scholars were saying we don't need um democracy in order to develop others were saying actually we do but what sort of democracy do we need some would say liberal democracy others would say social democracy in the manner of uh, the nordic countries i was saying look this is important um 
But what matters for us as African scholars are the epistemic implications of whatever it is that we're going to come up with. Um, he calls this the African discourse on theory of democracy and development. So, um, but then, I mean, in, in his work on, um, on land and agrarian issues on the African continent, he, I mean, the dominant view at the time, particularly on the dynamics of land tenure systems, was that um, African uh, land on the African continent is owned along communal lines. And Archie was saying this is, a, this is false, patently false, precisely because if you trace the history of African land tenure systems of the African continent, you would find that Africa, land in Africa was not considered property. And therefore the question of ownership immediately flies out of the window. The principle back then was that of usufruct or, or use rights, so that you use land, but you don't own it. What you take is the produce. Um, and therefore, um, it, it, was, it was also not communally held in the sense that what, what people shared communally were grazing fields, not arable plots of land. In the South African case, especially after the, the Quit Rent Act of the 1920s, I think it was 1927, black people in South Africa became tenants of the state. And therefore they were paying rent to the state. So that inheritance of land was not based on communities. It was not horizontal, but um, vertical. What I own would be inherited by my children and so on and so on. And therefore the idea of communal uh, land tenure systems is according to him flawed. There's also an interesting, uh, and I guess um, maybe um, contradictory view that he holds. I mean, one of the things he says, particularly on this question of peasants, so he doesn't outright use the question, the concept peasant when he talks about um, people who reside in the countryside on the African continent. He, he says they are small producers precisely because they subsist. And therefore this concept of small producers is used by him as a placeholder. Um, so we must study first whether there are peasants on the African continent. Now he uses the concept in the classical uh, learning sense in that he refers to peasants as petty landholders. So you must at least own some plots of land before you can be considered because peasants are land rooted. Now, in the case of um, the African continent, do people own land or do they not? To the extent that they don't own land, but merely reside in the countryside, they are not peasants because they are not landholders. They are small producers, he says. But then at the same time, this is um, theoretically or intellectually or maybe even conceptually important because 
it uh, flies in the face of some of the things he says. I mean, he says, for example, that except for Southern Africa, which is uh, an estuary, perhaps even current settler uh, society, he said in other parts of the African continent, the land question was resolved. And therefore, there's no land question. There's an agrarian question because people got their land after or post-independence. But this is also the same area that it says the people who reside there are not peasants, but small producers. So um, these are some of the, the, the interesting things that he says in this aspect of his work. So the most important thing, I guess, I mean, if we go back to his aspect, um, the aspect of his work that focuses on the critique of the social sciences is that, is that we must learn from the African societies themselves rather than importing theory in order to understand them. And, and to ask I mean, about that, um, sorry, please. just to ask to ask about exactly exactly that point, um, and maybe we can ask this as a as a final question before we bring Joshua on. Um, you mentioned that Archie was part of Marxist organizations like the Unity Movement. Um, so I'm curious to know: Would you consider him to be a Marxist, or would you say that he broke from Marxism intellectually and politically? Or did he still retain a lot of those roots? And can and I, I sure add to that before you, before you answer? Can I add to that? So one of the things about RT, I think, and we sort of, you sort of, when you told his biography that came out, is this sort of idea, you know, in the setup, we said people think of him as kind of like marginal, alone, but we know that he is heavily, you know, outside South Africa, which is, you know, isolated, apartheid and so on. He's in Kodesia. He is, if you go to a Godesra meeting, Atimafeze, he gets a lot of love. Like, you know, all the people in Senegal, Olokoshi, Mamdani, like, you know, when they were alive, Tandikam, Kandawire, if you talk to those guys, they would, they love, they, you know, they appreciate it, they love, they honored Archie. So my question to you on that is just, that's the side of, that's, that's, and this goes to the politics of Archie, I suppose. And somebody in the questions asked about sort of somebody like a Ben Magubani, where, but, you know, out, of course, you said like Axie's thing was like, I need to break with this idea that like me as an intellectual and my politics are these separate things. What, what, how, where do you see, say, Axie in relation to like some of the, the debates that are happening about South Africa, but also on the continent, you have these other South African academics that are also like Bernard Magubani, et cetera, and so on. So in your answer about Axie's politics and Axie as a Marxist, can you also answer that question that one of the, one of the, uh, the viewers was asking? Yes. Um, so, um, the, the, the most important thing about Archie is that, and I just, um, last week, I, I, I presented a paper here in my department um, in which I compare and contrast Archie and, um, and Samir Amin. For me, Archie remained a Marxist. But the thing about Archie is that he was not a crude Marxist who was content with regurgitating slogans and um, he didn't apply theory. He wanted to build theory and, and contribute to Marxist theory primarily. Um, so 
why he admired, for example, people like um, Lenin and Mao Zedong as, as, as theorists, precisely because they brought to bear the concrete realities of their respective countries to bear on Marxist theory. And so, um, yes, he remained a Marxist, but he was alert to the fact that there would be instances here in Africa which contrast dramatically with, um, with, with some of the closely held views in Marxist theory. I mean, here in Samir Amin, for example, when they study, especially East Africa, they talk about the concept of a tributary mode of production, whereas other Marxists wanted to study pre-colonial Africa as a feudal society. And he was saying the question of land as property did not hold in that area of the African continent. The way in which people were exploited was such that they were exploited through paying dues and tributes to the kings and chiefs and other village elders rather than being land bound in the manner of a, of a feudal society. And so I think the difference between Archie and, and Bernard Magumana, who's um, another intellectual hero of mine, is that I, I mean, without being unfair on Ben, um, but if you, if you take their collection of um, essays, um, especially on revolutionary theory and, and uh, South African struggles. So Ben Wakubana has a book, for example, um, a collection of essays which came out, I think, in 1989 or 1987, called uh, From Soweto to um, If So I think the, the, the fundamental biographical difference is that the they came from two different um, political traditions. Ben was ANC through and through. Archie was unity movement. Um, but the interesting thing about Ben is that although he was ANC, I don't think he joined SACP, although he was a Marxist. But he continued to use um, and defend AMC, SACP theories, for example, this idea of South Africa being a colony of a special type or being a case of internal colonialism. Marveje argued that I, this deviates from class analysis, um, partly because the idea of, of colonialism is, is um, external, externally imposed rather than being the idea of it being internal is, is a self-contradiction. But the, the most important thing is that there was nothing unique about South Africa in that case, in any case. I mean, you can compare South Africa with other parts of Southern Africa and other parts of East Africa, and also even with the US in that way. And so he referred to South Africa, and I think this is close to um, um, Cedric's concept, although not exactly the same, he referred to South Africa as a case of racial oppression in the age of imperialism. 
Now, this, this is a direct quote from an article you wrote, which was published in 1986. It's entitled South Africa, uh, the Dynamics of a Beleaguered State. It was published in a journal called uh, Journal of African Political Economy. And so, um, although he and Makubana came from different political traditions, Archie, in his collection of essays, which is entitled In Search of an Alternative, he was quite critical of the unity movement. You see? He was prepared to criticize his own movement, but with my, and, and therefore, in some cases, um, abandoned some of the unity movement's um, theoretical uh, and ideological positions. And that's something that Ben Makubana, as far as I'm concerned, was not prepared to do. He was an ANC cater through and through. Um, and so I think for me, um, the lesson to be learned, I think, from Afraj, especially in his political work, um, he was faithful to ideas, ideology, and principle rather than institutions and organizations. And he was prepared to be a lone ranger in that way. I think we can, I mean, the, this, this, uh, this is the thing about, say, taking somebody like Achimafeje, we could have you here for two hours and we have a million more questions that we could ask you. If you want to stick around, I think we'll go over by about 30 minutes. Um, maybe at the end we can come back to Achimafeje, but right now we're going to be joined by Joshua Myers, who is an associate professor of Africana studies in the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. Um, and he's the author of a book, uh, We Are Worth Fighting For, A History of the Howard University Student Protest of 1989. Um, and now he's writing a new book called Cedric Robinson, The Time of the Black Radical Tradition. Um, the book is part of the Black Lives series at uh, Polity Press. So um, I think he's gonna get onto the screen um, right now. So there he is. Welcome, welcome to the show, Joshua. So just for, for um, for the sake of people, and we did this um, when we started with Bongani, and I know you, you could only join the program because of other commitments, you joined the program late. Can you, for, for those of our listeners um, who, do, who don't know him, just kind of tell us a little bit about uh, who Cedric Robinson was. Just kind of give us a sort of four, four or five minute highlight reel of his life. I mean, this is we gotta get into some of the weeds of his work in a minute. And just part of that, it's interesting since we just spoke about Atima Feja, he also comes out of anthropology. He was also a student of anthropology. And the last quick comment, which I hope you can highlight, he also was influenced in the writing of his big book, Black Marxism, by ideas and debates about South Africa. And another similarity, sorry, quickly, is that his, his, the writing of his PhD also was tricky. He couldn't really, uh, Robinson's PhD was contested by his dissertation committee. So there's all these similarities. Yeah, I just want to say thank you all for inviting me to talk about, um, you know, some new work that I'm working on. Actually, the book is done. And so... Oh, excellent. Oh, I was just congratulations. The introduction, it'll be out in uh, the UK in September. And in the US, it'll be out uh, at the end of October. So, um, so the work that I did is really inspired by the fact that, you know, Cedric Robinson, you know, I, He's an African. That's how. That's the first thing I would say about him. 
And although, you know, he's born in Oakland, right? He, there's a very African uh, sensibility that, it, that grows over time, um, both culturally and intellectually. And so by the time he gets to uh, college, which was not expected uh, for black folks born in West Oakland in 1940, right? Um, by the time he gets to Berkeley, he's looking for more, more of Africa. And so, um, you know, Nell Irvin Painter, who was a classmate of his at the time, told me that the reason that they majored in anthropology is because they were looking for non-white people in the curriculum. There's no black studies yet, right? Um, and so the only place that you could find non-whites uh, was in anthropology. And so he switches from a pre-med major to um, majoring in anthropology. And then um, that's around 1960. And two years later, he's in Southern Rhodesia. Um, and so, you know, he's part of Operation Crossroads Africa. Uh, you know, founded by James Her Herman Robinson as a kind of, you know, Cold War era, pro-U.S. foreign policy, Africa, volunteerism initiative. <laughs> but has his own agenda when he goes to Southern Rhodesia. And he starts to hang around, you know, the folk who are organizing as part of Zimbabwe African People's Union. And that ruffles the feathers of the white settlers because here you have supposedly these Americans who are supporting, you know, white liberal interests and they are going around and messing with the African nationalists. <laughs> and so that was who he was. And so um, it wasn't just, it wasn't only him, but he was very much moved by that. Um, um, he meets uh, Reverend Ndabagini Sitole, he meets Joshua Nkomo, he meets Joma Kenyatta when they go to Kenya. Like he secretly tapes the rally <laughs> of, the, of Zapu and uh, actually Kanu, because um, they went through Kenya as they were getting to Southern Rhodesia. So there's a picture of him, you know, with Jomo Kenyatta on, on Kenyatta's farmland, um, you know, during that time. And so Africa was extremely important because he's also organizing with the Afro, with the, with the roots of the Afro-American Association, which is a black nationalist formation out in the area, which exists largely because of the independent struggle on the continent, connecting that to revolutionary struggles in the diaspora, including uh, Cuba and you know so on and so forth and so um africa is actually uh, central and um you know sharpville happens when he's in in undergraduate um lumumba is assassinated when he's in, when he's an undergraduate and that and that is shaping his approach to activism he, he comes in contact with also with robert f williams and malcolm x during his period of undergraduate of undergraduate work. And so all of that is really, you know, central to who he becomes and Africa sits at the center of it. And so by the time he gets to graduate school, you know, he studies the Ilatanga peoples of Southern uh, uh, Rhodesia, which is now, well, actually what is now really Zambia. It's really shaky because they, and he talks about this, is that they didn't create what we know as a, as a state. And so he uses the Ilatanga as an example in his dissertation of a group of people who don't create society around questions of the political. And that becomes his entree into a kind of a black studies approach to knowledge because ultimately for him, the disciplines created models of existence and categories of life that didn't map on to how African people actually live, which was now an opening for black studies to do something differently. And so he takes that to world systems theory in its formation. Um, when he goes to Binghamton as a professor and ultimately 
a lot of what he proposes to world systems theory is never adopted or it's adopted much later after he's gone, which has to do with not only the role of Africa, but the role of African people in opposing the world system. And that is the basis of what he does in black Marxism. And the one thing I'll say about black Marxism, probably more than one thing, but one thing I want to emphasize about black Marxism is one of the critiques is that where is Africa, right? Um, and Africa is there, right? There's a small section called Africa Revolt at the Source. But that was going to actually, he planned for that to be the preface to an entire second volume on Africa alone. And so the idea, the theories of black Marxism or the content of black Marxism absolutely applied to the African, the continental African situation. The only problem was that that volume never appeared. And so it gets framed as if black Marxism is not about Africa, but that volume would have been, um, you know, and I've seen some of the outline for it. It would have been centered around the ideas of another important African revolutionary, Amakar Cabral, who for Robinson was one of the most important components, person, personas of black radical intelligentsia. And he's doing what all that. He, sorry, I just wanted to ask, what did he mean by that term? Because he, you mentioned now uh, Cabral is belonging to black radical intelligentsia. Robinson yeah. proposes the idea of a black radical tradition. What right. did he mean by that? So the tradition and the intelligentsia are not the same. The tradition is the actual resistance activities of African people to the system, right? And that didn't require intellectuals for it to exist. The intellectuals were required in order to sort of elevate it into a theory for people who may need words to translate those actions, right? Or need words to inspire those actions. And so the intelligentsia or Robinson argues had to discover the larger tradition. And in many ways they discover it after finding the absences or the critical silences within other radical traditions of this, of this idea of black resistance, right? And so Cabral is interesting in that sense because Cabral, you know, revises Marx to sort of meet the requirements of the revolution that he was actually involved in. Um, in Guinea-Bissau and in revising Marxism, of course, that enables the cultures of resistance that, you know, enlivened the lives of the peasantry, the seed of opposition that sort of guided how they, you know, viewed the world around them and colonialism as a force in that world around them to come up with an authentic theory of revolution, right? And so, you know, Robinson writes about Cabral two uh, in two places, in, in, in Radical America, um, which was, uh, who was it? I think it was, um, the name's escaping me now. Herbert Gutman, I think, is involved in that uh, publication. Um, but that is his extended treatment of, of Africa. But I was, what I was gonna say is he's also organizing, right? He's a part of the anti-apartheid struggle, not only um, engaging, though, engaging it in England around the whole concept um, of racial capitalism, but also when he comes, comes back to Santa Barbara. Um, and so there are black people in California, right, that are organizing around anti-apartheid in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and he's involved in that work. And he ends up um, in 1999 at the University of the Wits at a conference on Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And so, I mean, there's so many ties that we can draw. And in fact, there's actually, I think, enough for a book, literally enough for, for a book on Cedric Robinson and Africa, Cedric Robinson as an Africanist even, right? Um, and so that's um, very much connected to this whole conversation. Now, um, about the South African connection and racial capitalism, 
I'm not totally sure um, about that because there's no, there's really no archival trace right. uh, of this in, in Robinson's private archive. So I can only speculate about what that can, I, I can only speculate about what the connection was. He of course knew these folks, right? There's a very real, um, cause they're in the same circles in London. Right. Uh, but in terms of the inspiration for the term, the inspiration for the concept, you know, it's interesting, Robinson, the chapter that he writes that uses the title racial capitalism and black Marxism is already written by the time he gets to London. So the concept that he's sort of outlining, you know, it's already in place because of his previous relationships with radicals in the Detroit circles and Arbor, that vortex, his engagement with, you know, people like CLR James and others and, and you know, that portion of his life. But I think there was maybe an attempt to sort of connect it to um, some of the language that was being put forward and to also extend and broaden that language to include something much larger than I think, than what I think the South Africans were doing with the concept right. to Western civilization itself, right? Not just the anti-apartheid struggle, but how that's part of Western civilization itself. But in terms of a direct, you know, like documented connection, it's very hard to find that. Um, between there's usually what people will say is that at that time there's this group in the ANC who's 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 questioning like the ANC's conventional understanding of capitalism in South Africa. So this mm -hmm. guy Martin Lagasse, who actually studied in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I think in the '60s, Neville Alexander, who's right. who's a sort of unity movement figure from the sort of what we just talking earlier about Achim Afeje, mm -hmm. and and um, David Hemson, who I know listens to the program. I don't know if he's he's watching today but so there's, there's this kind of it's interesting that you said it's stuff has already been written because usually he's right people sort of say they he's in england he's around clr james right. uh, so that's where you're picking up steve stewart hall so that's where you're picking up these sort of arguments about racial capitalism i wanted just to ask a related question to this what is his relationship at, during these moments with other black american kind of radical thinkers because you said also He's talking to people in Ann Arbor. The, I, I'm assuming you mean like SDS and all that. But can you well, say like what is his relationship? Before you answer that, before you answer that, what, where does he like sort of fall? Say with with other people who are also making thinking, writing at this time, and even later into the 80s, like you know somebody like I don't know Manning Marable or or Harold Cruz or yeah. Adolf Reed or like Gerald Horn or Angela Davis. Like where does he fit? Next to those people, and that was a, that was a crazy group. But I'm just yes. thinking, like, you think Black American radicals who are doing, you know, what you say, this kind of like mm -hmm. thinking world, thinking world systems, thinking like you know, making the connections. Like, how do he relate? How does he relate to all those people? For example, Robinson had a relationship with every single person that you named. So. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's so it it goes back to the early '60s though. So you have to work through his life when he's in the Bay Area because there's so many opportunities to get involved in radical political organizing even before the Black Panther Party is founded in 1966. And so, you know, when I was actually in Oakland, you know, tracing some of this, you know, a lot of the librarians said, oh, you mean the Panthers? And so they start, they start their orientation is 1966 forward because that's when Black Power started. And it's like, no. It's 1958, 59, 60, with the independence of African countries, and that's inspiring these black folk 
who were organizing. And so, and even before that, because we want to talk about radical um, anti-capitalist anti organizing, right? And so early on in Cedric's journey, um, after he comes from Africa, and so he's meeting, he's already met Kenyatta, he's already met Nkomo and these folks, then he meets William Patterson and Louise Thompson Patterson. He meets Matthew and Evelyn Crawford. These are old school anti-capitalist organizers. And it's not altogether clear what he learned from them beyond the fact that there is an intellectual tradition of engaging with radical leftist organizing. And so he connects that with what he was experiencing as a black power before there's a concept of black power as such in the late 1960s with his work in Berkeley. And so he had already met Malcolm. He had already engaged Malcolm. He had already met Robert F. Williams. Engagement for Malcolm X, right? Say it again, you kind of broke up. No, I said he, he had organized, I think, a speaking engagement for Malcolm X, yeah. Um, in 1961, right? In the same spring, he brings in Robert F. Williams, right? And when Robert F. Williams and them got in trouble, he organizes, he creates an organization called the Bay Area Committee for the Defense of the Monroe Defendants in late 1960s. We don't know, Robert Williams is a sort of like proto arm struggle, if you want, yeah. right? African-American kind of radical politics in the 60s. Yeah. Right, it's the arm of radical self-defense, radical some case, guerrilla warfare in the United States South, right? And so all of that is already in his mind in, in, while he's at the age of 20, 21. And so by the time you know he enters the academy, it's to represent that political struggle in, in theory, in words, in concepts. And so he's aligning with people that are doing that kind of work in black studies. And so some of the names uh, that you mentioned, um, you know, Manny Marable in the 1980s, there's a relationship in the early 1980s. Um, there's actually an attempt to bring Manny Marable out to um, University of California, you know, um, Angela Davis, you know, there's a relationship with her. Um, also an attempt to bring her out to Santa Barbara, but they do get Gerald Horn to come. And so Gerald Horn and Cedric are on the same faculty in Black Studies. Um, actually, Gerald was in the Department of Black Studies while Cedric was in the uh, Center for Black Studies. And so they're, they're, they're actually there at the same time. Um, so, I mean, if you really connect these particular figures, Robinson would have been, you know, at, at the very least in conversation with them. Um, but he's also, you know, struggling to maintain the status of the Center for Black Studies. He's also involved in political organizing in Santa Barbara. So there are a number of groups out there, including the local ACLU that he works with, the George Washington Carver Club that he works with, because um, the Black community is very small, but it was um, also connected to many of the same struggles that you see with black communities in the 1980s in California, in 1990s in California, especially- And to ask a question, sorry, to ask a question about that, because it's, yeah. it's it's fascinating for me to to sort of get in touch with this history, which I think is, is so unknown to most people, which is that uh, Cedric Robinson was rooted. He's rooted in organizing right. and he was an active intellectual. So I'm curious to, to know what his, theory of organization was. So in a, in a country like the United States, and this is a debate that persists till, till today, yeah. um, how, how does he think 
black Americans, for example, should be organized. So should they be organized as the black community? Should they be organized according to class? And if they're organized according to class, is there potential for um, their solidaristic organization with, for example, white workers? So how did how did his his thinking about racial capitalism and class at the time influence his views on organizing? I mean, that's, that's a complicated question for a number of reasons, but I would say that as a whole, you know, Robinson would have aligned with anybody willing to undermine and overthrow white supremacy, the racial capitalist system as a whole. And that meant, you know, also having a deep sense of international solidarity, international connections. And so one area, his most, I think one of perhaps his dominant area of organizing was media activism in the late 19, um, and really the, the 80s and 90s when they wanted to make the connection between United States imperialism and what was happening in Grenada and Iran and Nicaragua and other parts of the, of the world, they used media to raise awareness in the United States and particularly Santa Barbara about these particular connections that we must have. We must, And the idea was that we must struggle with all oppressed peoples. And for him, that meant a clear recognition of the role that the United States foreign policy plays in really perpetuating these racial and colo racist colonial systems of control and of power. And I think a lot of that probably comes out of, you know, the influence and arguments really with C.L.R. James, who he actually meets in, in the early 1970s when he's still in the United States of America, living in Washington, D.C. Um, so, also the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, the Detroit piece, is not the SDS, it's actually the League of Revolutionary Black Workers um, that sort of provides the connection between the Black Studies program and Michigan and radical activism on the ground in Detroit. And the contradictions galore of the League, of course, presents opportunities for clarifying a lot of what you argue or um, what you, what you uh, in terms of the question that you've asked, around the questions of how you struggle. But I think for Robinson, it was straight up solidarity, period. And anybody that's, you know, struggling against, you know, white supremacy and, and all of his various manifestations, we have to, have to align with. And he was also very strategic in understanding the nature of that solidarity. It wasn't the kind of solidarity that meant you had to erase who you are. And so he would often talk about how, um, you know, his blackness was what gave him the ability to see and to think and to orient himself towards the nature of the beast. And that goes back to his grounding with his, his grandfather and his aunt, like early life. And so that never leaves him. You know, at the end of Black Marxism, he says, we must, we, we must, we must remain one with that. Um, even as we struggle with other people, um, you know, he was talking in a, in a, probably one of his last lectures in 2015, I think this was actually on YouTube, about how, you know, it was because someone, you know, instilled in me a sense of pride and understanding of my blackness that I was able to understand the, the nature of what police brutality actually represented and how that as an arm of the state, when it is a very particular um, manifestation and condition of white supremacy that struggle against us as black people, even as we are people of the world, and the idea is that your blackness doesn't negate your connection to other people, meaning blackness is simply a way that the black radical tradition is a way of creating space and creating 
the idea that others are a part of this common project of humanity because it is the black radical tradition that says we, we will not sustain the idea that people are property. We will not sustain the idea that land could be held in private and be used as, as an exploitable product. It's the black radical tradition that gives us that. And so it's not a position of it's just us. It's a position of here are the ethical kind of, here are the ethical, what is Zinika what says, these are the guys to existence as opposed mm. to you know, the rule or the way of life. No, this right. is a guide to how to be. This is a guide to how to exist. And so that right. always comes other people. So here's my, I wanted to just follow up on that. In your book, so one of the things that is interesting more recently is of course, uh, Black Lives Matter activists, they're picking up on Cedric Roberts. And if you're on Twitter or on social media, you know, people yeah. are also sort of quoting him left, right and center. It's interesting, we also finding that in struggles elsewhere on the continent, that you have young, you know, new generations of young African activists, intellectuals and so on, they reading black Marxism. Mm -hmm. Can you say in your book, do you deal with this, this kind of, you know, is this an American, is, is Cedric's work mostly applicable, say, to the American social condition or can it work elsewhere? Is that something that you, you sort of answered a little bit of it already by saying this is not a rule book, it's a guide. So if you're living in Cape Town in South Africa or in in uh, in southern um, southern Zimbabwe or in, in Nairobi, Cedric can say something to you. Can you say a little bit about that? Uh, about, about, about why he's making a comeback? It's absolutely Pan-African in orientation. And you know, in fact, if you if you're reading it and thinking it's an American text, you're missing the I think you're misreading the text. That's my personal. Um, so it's, 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 it's diaspora-wide, it's Pan-African, it's all of those things because ultimately the black black existence in the modern world is, is Pan-African, right? And so for him, that chapter, chapter six in the text where he goes through starting in 16th century Mexico, and coming all the way to 19th century South Africa and stopping in Jamaica, stopping in Colombia, stopping in Venezuela, stopping in Cuba, stopping in Haiti, stopping in the United States, stopping in Barbados. He continuously is giving a Pan-African theory of black common revolutionary ideas. And ultimately it's the ability to live free, right? To live free of the imposition of the system of racial capitalism, which is at the core of every struggle in the black world, right? The ideological difference is how you get there, but the but the but the desire is something that we have to seize on, right? Mm. All the time, it's very few of us, right? Very few black people don't see that. There are very few black people that 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 uh, don't see the system as a problem, right? <laughs> The question becomes, how do we get to there? But we have to be, we have to seize on the on that on that on that reality that you don't have to convince black people that something is off. <laughs> and so the question becomes, how do you get to a point where you can live free of that? And for Robinson, that changes over over time, right? It's it's clear in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries that one, in order to live free of that, one becomes a maroon, right? Right. By the time the 19th century, you know, occurs in the, in the industrial, you know, adolescence of capital, capitalism is coming to existence, revolutions start to be more of an assault 
um, more of the assault that we that we perpetuate. And then once formal colonialism happens, there's another struggle that, that another level of struggle on the continent and in and in the diaspora that we have to that we have to struggle with. And in anti-colonial independence movements, I think, is really you know when he's in Southern Rhodesia in 1962, I think it is those movements that give him a sense really of the black radical tradition as the people's struggle. Like he has to break from the liberal do-gooder mindset and literally go to the villages, go to the meetings of the Zapu. And that's where he gets a sense, I think, that's, I mean, that's the meanings of black Marxism uh, in terms of this notion that the people, the people decide for themselves, right? And struggle and they decide for themselves that this doesn't come from an imposition of some type of ideological framework or some you know set of doctrines that then they have to apply no look at what look at what you know what's happening you know in this village as they struggle against literally settler colonialism and i think that shapes him in, in innumerable ways and, and the other thing that shapes him of course is growing up in west oakland where people have to figure out how to survive every day so to ask I mean, maybe, no, I was say, Oakland, Oakland is unique. I mean, like the the kind of radical, you know, sort of radical black internationalist politics of Oakland is is, and in the U.S. it has had its own uniqueness. But sorry, William, you go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to 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 maybe as a I suppose a, a final question and to bring it all together. You're talking how about. Robinson sort of refrains from any kind of ideological imposition of how people ought to resist because he says we must be students of how people are actually resisting. So I'm curious to know that by the time of his passing, which was a fairly recent actually, what what was his his vision of social transformation for this age? What did he think people were were doing and and how could we could we learn from that and sort of related to that is that he here he i mean the very project of of black marxism is this critique of of pre-existing ideological frameworks but i'm i'm curious to know would you at the end of his career and his life consider robinson to be a marxist and if so i mean what what i mean i guess this is his entire life's project but uh, yeah, would straightforward question is is he a Marxist? <laughs> As a and just to add, and just and just to add to that, because I think he, he passes away in in 2016 when when BLM when Black Lives Matter is in full swing, when there's a comeback of socialist politics in the U.S. with the with the Democratic Socialists of America and so on. Yeah, but, you know, of course he's he from what if you go online, like you see him, he's at events, he speaks and so on. So he's obviously engaging with this kind of real politics too. Yeah, um, I would not label him a Marxist. I've never seen him label himself a Marxist in the sense that he even makes the distinction between the ideas of Karl Marx and organized Marxist as, a, as an intellectual project, organized Marxism mm -hmm. as an intellectual project. And in fact, if you read the early parts of his dissertation in terms of order, and making that distinction, he he argues that organized Marxists missed the missed the point. One of the key points of Marx, which is not to reproduce political societies and think that you're actually freeing yourself, and that sort of becomes his critique of at least on one level of Marxism. And then the other is extended in his 2001 book, an anthropology of Marxism. Going back to that word of anthropology, why does he use anthropology? 
because he wants to see it as a system of human culture too. Meaning that ultimately Marxism, the principle of socialism that undergirds Marxism was not invented by Marx, even in the European context. In fact, let's go back to what the struggles against these systems of power and control in Europe were before Marx comes onto the scene to understand what Marx got wrong about even European notions, right? Of living against political systems and living against political order. And at the end of that particular book, he says the socialist spirit is going to endure, meaning the idea that people should live in common and, and exist in common and have resources that they share in common. That spirit is going to persist, whether or not we call it or label it, whatever we label it. And it's a, that spirit which matters. And so I do have him uh, documented as saying, yes, I am a socialist, right? But I think to sort of label it and frame it through an intellectual genealogy was something that gave him pause. Um, and so in terms of BLM, yes, um, his his widow, so I had a, already had a, had a book talk um, on the book and his widow was there, Elizabeth Robinson, who was an activist and organizer in her own right and an intellectual in her own right. She actually asked me the same question at the end of my last book talk. And she says, what would he say about the whole ideas about you know race and gender struggle, sexuality struggle, indigenous struggle that's happening right now? It's a difficult question because as I, as I said earlier, you know, he was against all forms of oppression, but in terms of the actual organizing that's happening right now, there are so many levels and so many different variations and so many assumptions that guide how people move about struggling against these forms of oppression. And um, there's just so much out there to, to actually say, well, he would be for this or against this. It's, it's hard to say, um, but I think he would be very much, one thing he would say, he would be very much um, waiting for, listening for the spontaneous revolution. He was always into that. He was always into not being able to predict and not, be, right. not being able to sort of, you know, formulate an answer mm. on pre-existing ideas about what you think should happen. Mm. And being aware of being being attentive to the spontaneity was something that he would probably say to us right now. I think he would have, would have been gratified by what happened around the world in 2020. Um, you know, Robin, Robin Kelly writes about that in the new edition to Black Marxism that came out um, last month. Connecting his ideas to what happened in 2020 was very important because a lot of that was just spontaneous. Nobody planned that, right? And so the question becomes, what do you do in the wake of it? And I think that's an ongoing question but intellectuals probably aren't in the position to act to ask me answer that question. It's the people that have to answer it. Well, I think when you when you said like the 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 his relationship with like his his grandfather, uh, mm -hmm. his mother, uh, being from Oakland, like like uh, I think I when you said when you opened and I I was kind of my hand like this. I think I read somewhere that when he when he went to register at Berkeley, he stood in line. African student and the at the at the the uh, registrar administrator said, uh, "Oh, you you might you you're, you're coming from an African country. Is your country going to sponsor you?" I think it's a great moment of just sort of this guy's life. It's incredible, and you did a really good job, I think, of kind of um, establishing it as an African. The way you set it up, like that this guy, you know, he's 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 at all times he's he's sort of open. He's open to like learning. 
learning yeah. new ideas, picking up from picking up in southern, you know, then southern Rhodesia, picking up in in London. Like he just spun Sussex, you know, he's sponging. But I, I like, but I think he does. He must have a core because I, I always say to people, as much as I, you know, as, as much as you kind of change your mind or you see something coming, even if it looks weird when it comes towards you, you could see its potential. I think for me, for example, I'm totally the product of sort of late 1980s um, uh, classes at the University of Cape Town. And I'm basically understanding the world through historical materialism. Mm -hmm. That's that for me. It's like, yeah, I will adjust that. I'm not Dr. Nair, I don't have a party, but I will, that's, that's my framework of how I see the world as the world is coming towards me. So if you're asking what Cedric's core is, I think yeah. it is, I think it is African spiritual life. And that guides his sense of possibility. Not, it's not, a, it's not, some people will say, what well, spirituality means you want to escape the material conditions and say, no, no, no. It's the spirituality that guides Cedric's sense of possibility, meaning we, not, we might not be able to see what's coming, but we have to be ready for what's coming, which is at the core, his grandfather was deeply religious and he made sure that his family was deeply religious. Even though Cedric breaks from the formal organized piece of it, but he never moves away from the spiritual the spirituality which says that we can see we can see possibilities that you uh, can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And that's, yeah. How, that's how he arranges you know, black radicalism. Everybody yeah. who was enslaved could see freedom, but you still fought for it. Meaning this, there's something beyond, right? There's something in out there that we have to latch onto as we struggle against the very real things that we're struggling against materially. So I think I know you mean it's sort of an epistemic, just at a kind of a yeah, just at a he, when he when he's talking to somebody regular, mm -hmm. he 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 can see it. Yeah. Like if you just if you haven't been exposed to that world or don't yeah, or, or, yeah don't have I suppose that sensibility, you cannot mm -hmm. deny. It. I think that's what you're driving at. Anyway, we could go on here, and we had the same problem with. Pongani yeah. setting up this kind of elaborate and beautiful, uh, just like I think somebody at one point said, I'm listening, it's so beautiful, um, like having, because we, you know, we we know that these intellectuals are incredible, these people made incredible contributions, but they they weren't necessarily written out, but it's like a certain kind of canon became dominant and then people don't care uh, about their contribution. So this for me was wonderful. Just to, and then one morning I wrote to Will in the margins and I said, oh, we are just listening. We're just going to listen today because that's that's uh, uh, that's the approach. So with that, and that's I want to about them. Sorry, just one thing I want to make an observation from this conversation about both Archie and Cedric. That's what they did, right? They were they were extremely intellectually humble, is what I'm realizing. Yeah, so totally. is, uh, <laughs> sorry, I, I I will say this. I've actually uh, again. I don't think he remembers my name or anything or didn't even register him. But I did. I was in a room, like, I think twice maybe with Achima Feje. I don't remember a, how do you call it, like, a kind of like, oh, I'm Achima Feje type of dude. Right. It was, that was one of the things about him is that he was so humble. And people were just like, when when at the end of his life and he was in Namibia, people were like, why aren't South African universities hiring this guy? Right. Why aren't they bringing this guy back? He wasn't doing that. He wasn't doing that like, yeah. he wasn't like making noise and it's like, I'm Achima Feje, I need to be back. People are saying that about him. He's just a regular dude who's turning up at events and talking to young people. I think that that's probably what, you know, that sensibility that they both had.
Yeah. The same is true of Cedric Robinson. I was, I was saying he would have preferred to be written out because it's about the tradition. It's not about me. And so when they tried to actually have a celebration for black Marxism, you know, in 2003, he says, don't make it about me, make it about black radical thought. And so that's the name of the conference. It's not a conference in honor of Cedric Robinson. It's a conference in honor of black radical thought. So, yeah, it's funny. I went to one Harold Cruz that had the same kind of thing where it wasn't about Harold. It wasn't called Harold Cruz. People knew it was about Harold Cruz, but it was about ideas. Anyway, we have to stop. We can keep going. We have to stop. Thank you to Mongani Nyoka. Thank you to um, to Josh Myers. Thank you to to our many um, regular listen, listeners and viewers in the comments. I was looking at YouTube. Um, to, to those who were like wondering when the show started, I see in the comments they say like, yo, why are you all discussing football? Why are you discussing <laughs> soccer? You, you promised us we had to listen to Bongani Nyoka and Josh Myers. But no, we, we were just, at the beginning of the program, we usually have a quick kind of like, what is the thing that Will and I thought about uh, for the week? We just handle it in 10 minutes. So that was what that about. And no, I do not want the national football team to be filled with white players. Um, some people are saying, no, 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 no. Um, I'm just saying that if we're gonna win, we have to expand our notion of of how we think of uh, of the nation. Like who who is a who is a citizen who can become a member of this nation? Which I which was totally I think if Cedric or Archie Mafeja had to say something about sports, they would have said it because they could see it coming. In any case, this was a great program, and we we went a bit over time today, but we so we so happy that we did. And thank you, Josh, for for um, so waiting much. and around us. Yeah. So, and thank you to our producer, Antoinette Engel, for once again a great program. Yeah. So goodbye, everybody.